0: 2 Kings chapter 15. We got through verse 16 last Sunday night. We will pick it up in verse 17 this evening. Remember the whole theme of Kings is covenants and character. God's faithfulness to His promise, Israel's not-so-good faithfulness to their promise. God's character, which never changes, remains the same, is steadfast. And sometimes there's good character that we see in these kings, and sometimes not so good character. Well, this chapter, 15, it covers the reigns of seven kings. Some good, some bad. So it's a good kind of encapsulation of the entire book. But what's interesting is whether they're good or bad, none of them accomplish much from a from the the writer's spiritual evaluation of them. They don't accomplish much. In fact, we know this in other places in the Bible it calls it being lukewarm. We often call it dead religion. A lot going on but very little progress in knowing Jesus and making him known. The Bible uses the word religion a few times not often. Religion isn't really a bad word when referring to Christianity but but it becomes such when we think we have it figured out and that we don't need to press into the Lord anymore. And that's where Israel and Judah kind of are right now. They're on cruise control, and unfortunately, they're headed for disaster. So chapter 15, Second Kings, we pick it up in verse 17. It says in verse 17, And in the 39th year of Azariah, king of Judah, began Menahem, the son of Gadi, to reign over Israel. And he reigned ten years in Samaria, and he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. He departed not all his days from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin. So here we see his reign, and and the writer gives his spiritual evaluation. He only reigned 10 years, not very long. In fact, Israel would only last as a nation for about 30 years after Jehu's last descendant. He's the first king in this chapter. It mentions here, though, that the problem with him is that he did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. Those were those golden calves that he constructed and said, I don't want you going down to Jerusalem to worship anymore. These are your gods, O Israel, that brought you up out of Egypt. Aaron had it right the first time when he constructed the golden calf. This is the most ancient form of our worship, and we need to go back to that. We don't need to go to the temple in Jerusalem. And God had a major problem with that. And every king after Jeroboam did not away with those things, and so they were evil in the eyes of the Lord. It has been said well, we should be known for what we're for rather than what we're against. And to be honest, I generally agree with that statement. I do think that we should be known more for what we're for than what we're against. But there are things that we must be against. There are things we must depart from, Things we must reject and things we must oppose. And idolatry is one of those things. We can't just say, well, you know, I know all these other things are going on, but I'm for Jesus. We do need to declare that there is a falseness about idolatry. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life that no man comes to the Father but by me. That is a very exclusive statement. Jesus is saying there are things I'm opposed to when he makes that statement. So, there are things that we must oppose and reject. Now, this is the most important point that the writer makes because this is what brought about the northern kingdom's downfall. But he does bring up another important event that has application for the exiles. Remember the writer here is writing all these things have already happened. And he's writing to the exiles of Judah who are in Babylon right now about their history and the lessons that apply to them now from what has happened in their history. And so there is one more important event that has application for those exiles about Menahem's reign that the writer brings up. Look at verse 19. It says, And Pool, the king of Assyria, came against the land, and Menahem gave Pool a thousand talents of silver that his hand might be with him to confirm the kingdom in his hand. And so Menahem exacted the money of Israel, even of all the mighty men of wealth, of each man 50 shekels of silver to give to the king of Assyria. And so the king of Assyria turned back, and he stayed not there in the land. The rest of the acts of Menahem and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel? Menahem slept with his fathers, and Pekahiah, his son, reigned in his place. Now, there is some debate on who this guy Pool is, but most believe that this is the Babylonian name for the Assyrian king Tiglath-Pileser III. Tiglath-Pileser III is considered to be the ruler who changed Assyria from a kingdom into an empire. His reforms immediately made Assyria strong after years of mediocrity in the region. He eventually became the first king to rule over both Assyria and Babylon. Two years into his reign, he invades the Middle East, and he conquers all of Syria, the country to the north of Israel, conquers all of Phoenicia, the country to the northwest of Israel, and then he sets his sights on the Promised Land. Now, what's crazy is, just a couple chapters ago, just a few years prior to this point, when Jeroboam II was king of Israel, most of that region was under Israeli control, they ruled over all of that. So something must have happened during Israel's civil wars in the last chapter that allowed Syria to break free. Well, Syria breaks free, but they're still a very weak in Syria. And so Tiglath-Pileser crushes a very weak Syria. And when that happened, rather than go meet the king of Assyria in battle, Menahem makes Tiglath-Pileser a proposal. I'll become your vassal… And pay you a hefty tribute for the small price of you officially recognizing my reign. Now, why was that a problem? Well, remember, we've seen coup after coup after coup in this chapter. None of these guys had stable reigns, and none of these guys had the full support of the people. In fact, this guy in particular, remember what he did when he seized the throne. He was opposed by an entire tribe, the tribe of Ephraim. And when they came out to fight him, he didn't just defeat them and then decide, okay, I'm the king, you guys need to listen to me. He went to all their cities, and he wiped out everyone, man, woman, child. This was not a loved king. This was not a king who had a lot of support. And so he looks at this, rather than something that is a danger to the nation, he looks at it as an opportunity to strengthen his rule. And so he says, I'll be your vassal. I'll be loyal to you. I'll pay a hefty tribute. Just declare that I'm the official king of Israel. Put your support behind me. And it works. It says that the king of Assyria turned back and did not stay there in the land. Well, how did he get this money? It tells us in verse 20 that he exacted the money from Israel, even of all the mighty men of wealth, of each man 50 shekels of silver to give to the king of Assyria. That's 37 tons of silver, a thousand talents, 37 tons of silver. Well, this agreement accomplished the same thing as a conquest for Assyria, but without the bloodshed. So, the king of Assyria thinks this is a win-win. Menahem thinks it's a win-win because he doesn't plan to take the money from the real treasury. He's going to take it from all the wealthy people in Israel. And so with the threat of Assyrian support, he could make the people do whatever he wanted to. I'll threaten you if you you don't pay this tax I'm putting upon all the wealthy people. He says then, the king of Assyria, he's in charge now. He'll, He'll deal with you. He recognizes me. I've got all the support of the Assyrian army behind me. And so even the wealthy and influential people in his nation had to bow the knee and pay this special tax. At the rate that Menahem set 50 shekels a person to get to 37 tons of silver, it would take 60,000 wealthy individuals to provide for his pledge. Now, 60,000 wealthy people in a country that's not that big, that's how prosperous Israel had been during this time period. Many were living a wealthy life. But that doesn't mean they were walking with the Lord. And this would not keep Israel away forever. In fact, the prophet Hosea, who was preaching during this time, he said in Hosea chapter 5 verse 13, he predicts that this short-sighted plan will fail in the future. He says in Hosea 5 13, When Ephraim saw his weakness and Judah saw his wound, then went Ephraim to the Assyrian and sent to King Jerob, yet could he not heal you nor cure you of your wound? This was not the answer for you, Menahem. That was another name for Menahem. So when Menahem dies, he leaves all this baggage behind for his son to deal with, and as a result, his son does not reign very long. Look at verse 23. In the fiftieth year of Azariah, king of Judah, Pekahiah, the son of Menahem, began to reign over Israel in Samaria, and he reigned two years. And he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin. Why did he only reign for that short a time? Verse twenty-five tells us. But Pekah the son of Remaliah, a captain of his, conspired against him and smote him in Samaria in the palace of the king's house. It's not surprising that an opposing faction decides to act so soon into this transfer of power, just two years. And yet, what's interesting here is the Bible tells us that Pekahiah wasn't at the whim of fate. He wasn't at the whim of a people who didn't like his father. He wasn't at the whim of his father's legacy. He had his own choice to make about whether he was going to follow the Lord or whether he would not. And the Bible tells us he did that which was evil in the eyes of the Lord, which means he did have a chance in those two years to change things. He could have been a godly king. He could have repented. He could have experienced God's blessing in his life. But he chose not to. I know that there are some of you here tonight that you're going through it. I know that that you may look out and you go, man, look at that family or that couple or that guy or that gal, and, you know, they're doing so well, and their lives seem so blessed, and, you know, they don't seem like they're going through a lot. And Man, it just feels like I've got thing after thing after thing after thing. There are people at our church who they you know, they call me up, and I get off the phone with them and praying with them, and I say, Lord, Lord, they just need a break. Lord, just give them, give them a respite from all the hardship they're going through, all the, the difficulties that life seems to be throwing at them. I realize that, that a lot of us are in different places. Some of us are going through it right now. Some of you, you're going through rough marriage situations. you got kids who aren't walking with the Lord, or, or your work situation, your financial situation is really rough. I get it but there is a truth that exists no matter where we are on that spectrum and it's this that no matter what situation you've been dealt with and dealt in life you always have the choice to follow the lord always you always have the choice to follow the lord or to do things your own way always you know i think of that moment in john chapter 6 where jesus is in the synagogue in capernaum and he's He's teaching the, the people, and they've come to him because they've, they've just, they they just—they were fed yesterday, miraculously fed. They got a free meal yesterday, and they're back for more food. And Jesus explains to me, he says, listen, he goes, I know why you're here. He goes, but you need something more. And it's not that the Lord couldn't do that. It's not that the Lord even didn't want to do that. But he goes, you need something more. I'm the bread of life. He who believes in me and you know, all that will be satisfied, all of that all that need will be met, the biggest need that you have. And so they're, they're kind of hemming and hawing because they're trying to get him to do another miracle. And, and finally, Jesus says, listen, he goes, he goes you want a meal? <laughs> Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you're not going to be able to get into heaven. Well, that, you know, imagine you're a Jewish person and somebody's starting to talk about cannibalism and you're like, you know, what is this guy? And of course, Jesus is, is not telling him to eat his literal body and his literal blood. He's certainly not talking about communion because that hadn't even been instituted yet. But the idea is, do you understand you, you need me? You need the, I'm the bread of life. You need to start munching on, on that. You need to start giving your life to me. But when he says it, because it's, it's such a radical idea that's meant to kind of jolt them and get their attention and go, stop thinking about the, the food. Stop thinking about the, the fish and the loaves I fed you with yesterday. I know you need food, and I'm, I'm the God who will supply all your needs, but you have a greater need right now. And it's relationship with God. It's relationship with me. So Jesus says these words, and it, it tells us that people got angry And not only did people get angry, but then it says that some of his disciples stopped following him. Not the twelve, we'll get to that in a second, but some of those who had been following him since he started his ministry, they abandoned him. They said, Jesus, that's a little bit too radical. Like, even if you don't really mean for us to eat your actual flesh and drink your actual blood, just even using such an illustration is offensive. So Jesus turns to the twelve, and he says, our are you guys going to leave too? We get on Peter a lot. But this is one of his good moments. And he has words that have meant so much to me in so many of those crossroads of my own life. Where things were hard. Or maybe even battling sin, and it just seems like there's no way you're ever going to change. There's no way you're ever going to get on top of that thing and experience the victory in Christ. So many times... And I was at those crossroads. Those words of Peter were the words of my own heart. He says, Lord, where else will we go? You have the words of eternal life. Where else will we go? You're what we need. You're what we want. You know, we sang that song, Pursue. Lead me to you. Forever, Lord, I will pursue You've won my heart. Jesus, you're all that I want. You may be going through it, but you still have a choice. To follow the Lord or do things your own way. No, you can't control what other people would do. And sometimes there are things that even have to deal with the Lord that you have to realize you can't control. But you do have control over your choices. this guy did not choose to follow the Lord. So verses 25 and 26 describe this assassination, this conspiracy. But Pekah, the son of Remaliah, a captain of his, conspired against him and smote him in Samaria in the palace of the king's house, and Argob and Aria, and with him 50 men of the Gileadites, and he killed him and reigned in his place. And the rest of the acts of Pekah, high, and all that he did, behold, they are written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel. This guy, Pekah, he was a leader of a faction that wanted an alliance with Syria to overthrow Assyria's influence. So this is interesting. It's kind of like our own political climate for the last, I don't know, 100 years, where you've got kind of two, two factions. You've got one side that feels really strongly on this side, one side that feels really strongly on this side. That's how Israel's kind of at this time. You've got a group that's very pro-Assyria, and they think, listen, they're powerful, they're wealthy. We don't want to rock the boat here. We've got a good life here. Let's just keep things going smooth let's just keep appeasing them and everything will be fine. Then you had another faction that was very aggressive, very zealous, very patriotic, and they're like, no, we can beat these guys. We're, we're just as big, bad, strong as they are. Let's take them on and we'll beat them. Let's just get some allies and then we'll take them on. And Pekka's a part of that group. In fact, the Bible teaches us in other places that he would later, when he became king, threaten to invade Judah if Judah didn't join the alliance against Assyria. And it makes sense because we see that the people with them in this conspiracy, we don't know who Argob and Aria are, but 50 men of the Gileadites. Gileadites, that's a an old, whole area of land on the other side of the Jordan. Those, the Israelites who were on the other side of the Jordan, from the two and a half tribes over there, they were always the first to get hit by an invading force. They were always the first ones to get hit. And they were very anti assyria And so, Pekah was, it says he was a captain. He was likely a military commander from that side of the Jordan. And this faction led by him assassinates the king. He takes the throne, and he decides to enact his pro-Israel policies. Verse 27, and in the 52nd year of Azariah, king of Judah, Pekah, the son of Remaliah began to reign over Israel in Samaria, and he reigned 20 years. And he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. He departed not from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin. This guy was the longest lasting of Israel's final six kings. He made it his goal to reforge Israel into a powerful nation by securing alliances with everyone that Assyria had defeated. Now, to be frank, I'm not not sure of the logic behind a plan to ally with the losers instead of winners. And we'll see a moment that his plan fails miserably but that was his plan. let get all the guys that got beat up by Assyria, and then we'll get together, and then we'll beat Assyria together. But the writer here mentions, he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. When you read Isaiah the prophet, he ministered during the time when Pekah was king. You read some of the other prophets who were writing during the time that he was king, and you can see from their words that the nation felt pride once again under Pekah. He revived the old bitterness against Judah. We don't need our our people from the south, our brethren from the south. They're the lousy descendants of, of, of loyal to David. We don't need them. We're strong. And he revived that national pride again. And yet, the writer says, despite being popular with his people, he was not popular with the Lord. He refused to turn the nation from its idols. You know what I found in my own life? I know it's true because I see it in others' lives as well. And it's this. Cruise control religion does not work. It just doesn't work. You're either pressing in or you're sliding backwards. 63% of Americans profess to be Christian. 63%. But one look at 63% of the way people in our culture behave says otherwise. It says otherwise. Israel was a land that... The Lord's name was frequently on their lips, but few people knew the Lord, even though their lives related to the Lord in many ways. If you'd walk into the home, you'd probably see the verses on the wall. Well, you'd probably see him walking. Where are you going? Oh, I'm going to church. I'm going, going to the local gathering they would have. These were things that were common, even though these idols were all over the place. Let's not be those who settle for a cruise control faith. Amen? Let's be those who pursue, like we sang, pursue knowing our God. Verse 29, this patriotic plan, it might have been meant really well and maybe even organized well, but it does not work as Assyria invades once again. Verse 29, and in the days of Pekah, king of Israel, came Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, and he took Ai and Abel Beth Mecca and Jena and Kadesh and Hazor and Gilead and Galilee, all the land of Naphtali, and carried them captive to Assyria. This alliance that he decides to set up—it never finds its footing. They never even really get started. Assyria invades once again before they can mount a united resistance. And this time, the king of Assyria is not going to be bought. All the cities that are listed here are located in the Hula Basin that are south of Mount Hermon, the very northern part of Israel. Israel invades through the Hula Basin, capturing fortress after fortress until they have control of the entire tribal region of Naphtali and Gilead. Most of your Bibles probably have a, a map in the back of all the tribes. And you can look back there and see the huge chunk of land that he, he conquered. And then it tells us that he carried them. So these cities, these tribal lands that he conquered, he carried those people away captive into Assyria. One of the reasons that Tiglath-Pileser became so successful is that he instituted a new policy of how he dealt with conquered nations. And his policy was this. When we conquer a nation, we're not just going to rule over them. We're going to deport those nationals to Assyria, and then we're going to import Assyrians into the conquered region. And his thought was is as we intermingle all these people groups, they will lose their identity, making them less likely to rebel. It worked. In fact, the Babylonians adopted the policy when they became the dominant force in the region. This is something that you would see over and over again. The Romans even used it after they destroyed Jerusalem in 70 AD. But even though this was a political plan, Ultimately, this was more about God's judgment than Assyria's strategy. Turn to Deuteronomy 28 with me. Deuteronomy is the fourth book from the beginning of the Old Testament. Or, sorry, fifth book. Deuteronomy 28, a very long chapter. We're going to look at verses 63 and 64. Deuteronomy 28, verses 63 and 64. Now in this long chapter, God makes a promise to his people, not one we usually like to hang on the fridge. And his promise is this, I'm going to ratchet up the pressure if you refuse to respond to lesser disciplines. And so it'll start with one thing. And God says, and if you don't repent when I allow this to happen, I'm going to ratchet the pressure up a little bit. If you don't respond to that and repent, I'm going to ratchet the pressure up a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more if, if I can't get your attention through these other things. Well, when we get to verses 63 and 64, we're pretty much at the end, which means, well, let's just read it. Deuteronomy 28, verses 63 and 64. And it shall come to pass that as the Lord rejoiced over you to do you good and to multiply you, so the Lord will re- rejoice over you to destroy you, and to bring you to nothing. And you shall be plucked from off the land where you go to possess it. And the Lord shall scatter you among all people, from the one end of the earth, even unto the other. And there you shall serve other gods, which neither you nor your fathers have known, even wood and stone. The fact that they're being taken captive out of their land into foreign lands shows us that Israel, in Second Kings 15, is at the last stage of God's discipline. If they don't repent now, they won't be a nation anymore. But sadly, instead of repent, they decide their problem. It's our king. He was the problem. Verse 30, and Hoshea the son of Elah, made a conspiracy back in 2 Kings 15 verse 30. Hoshea the son of Elah made a conspiracy against Pekah the son of Remaliah and smote him and slew him and reigned in his place in the 20th year of Jotham the son of Uzziah. The rest of the acts of Pekah and all that he did, behold, they are written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel. Interesting, in Tiglath Peleser's personal annals, his personal histories in Assyria, he claims to have placed Hoshea on the throne of Israel to replace the defeated Pekah. But other Assyrian records claim that Pekah made uh, peace with Tiglath-Pileser when he conquered their other tribal lands, and he agreed to keep only the district of Samaria as his kingdom, a very small section. But then, even after that, he still wanted to rebel. He entered into a treaty with the kingdom of Tyre, and they both stopped paying their tribute. So Tiglath-Pileser sent Another army down to put down the rebellion, but Hoshea, this guy, convinced the commander, the king didn't even come of Assyria, he didn't think Israel was that big of a problem this time. But Hoshea convinced the commander, I can handle the problem myself, I can kill him, and I'll take his place, and I'll be loyal. And so Hoshea leads a successful coup, becoming the new king with Tiglath Pileser's approval. And thus, with Hoshea on the throne, Israel's last king, begins his rule. The nation now at this point is one small little district. It's but a fragment of what it used to be. But there's always hope if they will repent. That's the same hope that you, you and I, that any of us have, no matter how far astray we've gone or how awful this situation is. If you're still breathing, there's still hope to repent if you'll repent. I've talked to people sometimes and they'll say, you don't, you don't know what my life has been like, Pastor Will. I, I don't think I have a chance at redemption. And you know, mm. there is something I'm, I'm noticing. I've noticed a shift in the culture the last 10, 15 years. It used to be, used to be, at least it seemed like to me, that... there was less people were less quick to just write someone off forever but this is what i've been hearing in the last 10 to 15 years he doesn't deserve a chance at redemption that guy did such awful things he doesn't deserve a second chance i don't care how he's changed i don't i don't care this is what he did in the past and and you know i I realize i'm throwing a you know a, a pop culture term out there but the idea of cancel culture you know of dredging up something from someone's past and saying, this is someone that none of us can even ever, ever, you know, even be in the same room with anymore because they're the scum of the earth now. There is a pride that has entered into our culture. We are ready to look at someone else and say, there's no redemption for you. I've often wondered, I don't anymore, but I often wondered when I would read my Bible and you get to the book of Revelation and you see people, after all the judgments, they're shaking their fist at God. Like they're still shaking their fist at God, blaspheming his name, knowing where the judgment's coming from and still blaspheming his name, they won't repent. I thought, man, how stubborn do you have to be to do that? Now, it makes perfect sense. I feel like, and maybe I'm wrong, I feel like I see hearts that are so cold and so hard today. I feel the pressure of it being, trying to squish me into that mold. I feel the, the pressure of, of society trying to make my heart cold as well. But there is always hope. The whole nature of the cross cries out, screams out that there are none righteous, no, not one, that all of us need a Savior, and therefore all of us are in a bad spot, which means all of us can be redeemed. So I don't care what you've done. I don't care how far you've gone. I don't care how awful your situation is. If you're willing to repent, the Lord will forgive you, and He'll restore you. Now, That solution will never be found in any other place besides repentance, though. Listen, (laughs) like, what is the solution for a nation or a culture that's gone away from God, like we see here? The solution, only solution, is found in repentance. Like, the solution's never going to be found in someone who's more, like a leader, who's more or less patriotic. It's not going to be found in someone who's more or less liberal or more or less conservative on economic policy or foreign policy. And I'm not saying that there aren't good positions and bad positions to have on those things. That's not my point. My point is, if we want restoration, repentance is the only answer sin must be acknowledged and turned from because we can have the most patriotic leaders and and if they're still walking in sin and they're prideful and and they don't want what the lord wants we are not we are not going to delay the destruction we will not that is a fool's dream it is a pride-filled dream there can be no more excuses and no more compromises Now, we don't get to Hosea's story yet to see what kind of king he will become because there's a few Judean kings we need to talk about first. So we're going to get to that one as we close out this chapter in verse 32 before we get to chapter 17 where we see what happens with Hosea. So we shift. I know we're shifting gears here. We're going to move to verse 32, the kingdom of Judah here. It says, in the second year of Pekah, the son of Remaliah, King of Israel began Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, to reign. Five and 20 years old was he when he began to reign, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Jerusha, the daughter of Zadok. Now, we already know when we covered Uzziah that Jotham, his son, co-reigns with his dad for 10 years because of his dad's leprosy. Remember, he went into the temple and saying, I can be, do all the things a priest can do. And as soon as he got into the holy place, the Lord struck him with leprosy. So he could no longer really fulfill his public duties as king, so his son was raised to the throne and co-reigned with him for 10 years. He only reigns by himself for a few years. Now Judah is also incredibly prosperous during this time. So this guy inherits an incredibly prosperous king. He inherits an incredible legacy because the people had looked to Uzziah as the reason for their prosperity, even when he'd been struck by leprosy. So now that this guy's gone, is Jotham going to be up to the task of maintaining this prosperity on his own? We'll see. But what's interesting is when we look at Ahaziah and then Uzziah and Jotham, the testimony of God is verse 34. And he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord. All of these guys are declared to be righteous kings, they're not idolaters. But the Bible also keeps making the comment. But they, didn't, they weren't great lovers of God like David was. And so it says here in verse 34 that he did that which was right in the eyes of the Lord. He did according to all that his father Uzziah had done. So while the nation continued to prosper, prosper economically, the truth is we know from reading the book of Isaiah, Isaiah was very involved in Jotham's reign. We know that while it prospered economically, it had grown rotten spiritually. And what's interesting is that God actually used Uzziah's death as a wake-up call to Isaiah so that he could see past the prosperity to the problems that existed in the nation. Look at Isaiah chapter 1 with me. Isaiah received his calling from the Lord, the Bible tells us, in the year King Uzziah died. He was a prophet of God prior to that, but he received this special calling when Uzziah died. And it's almost like, like Isaiah saying, until our great king died, I don't think I really saw the Lord. But he says, in that day when our king died, our hero died, he says, I saw the Lord, and I got a real vision of what was going on. And so this is one of Isaiah's first sermons that he preached in those days. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 10 He says, hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. I've never started a sermon that way. <laughs> never. That is, not, that is not the advice included in the book, How to Win Friends and Influence People. <laughs> hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear unto the law of our God, you people of Gomorrah. And they ask the question, to what purpose, is the Lord asking, to what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices unto me? What do you mean, what purpose is uh, all the sacrifices we bring to you? God, you told us to bring them. To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices unto me? He says, why are you bringing them? I'm full of the burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of he goats." He says, you do all these things. And he goes, I'm nauseous. I'm, like, you know, the idea is I'm glutted. It's I, so much. I just, if that's all you're bringing to me is food, I'm done. When you come to appear before me, who has required this at your hand that you trample my courts? Bring no more empty oblations, empty offerings. You're going through the form, the function, but there's no heart behind it. Incense is an abomination to me. The new moons, the Sabbaths, those were their feasts, the calling of assemblies. He says, I can't away with it. They can't be over quick enough for me. It is iniquity. Even your solemn meeting, it's iniquity. Your new moons, your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They are a trouble unto me. I am weary to bear them. And when you spread forth your hands, he says, I will hide my eyes from you. Yea, when you make many prayers, I will not listen because your hands are full of blood. I think, I think Lot would be a, pa- a popular pastor today. I do. I think Lot would have a big church. I think Lot would fit in very well with church culture. That's why Isaiah says this, wash you, make you clean, put away the evil of your doings from before my eyes, cease to do evil, learn to do well, seek justice. Relieve the oppressed, judge the fatherless, plead for the widow. Come now, let's reason together, says the Lord. Don't just bring an offering, let's talk. Don't just burn the incense, let's talk. Let me deal with your sins, because though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. If you be willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be devoured with the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. How has the faithful city become a harlot? It was full of justice, righteousness lodged in it, but now murderers. Your silver has become dross, your mind is mingled with water. Your princes are rebellious and companions of thieves. Everyone loves bribes and follows after rewards. They do not judge the fatherless, neither does the cause of the widow come unto them. Well, Isaiah woke up. She read in Romans, "Time is now past to wake up. We can't just keep it on cruise control, go through the motions, do all the things, check all the boxes." Did Uzziah's death and Isaiah's prophecies wake up Uzziah's son, Jotham, when he became king? The answer seems to be no. For all he did that was his right in the sight of the Lord. He didn't get involved in idolatry. He only did according to all that his father Uzziah had done. In other words, he was not like David. Jotham was much more like his dad. He tells us verse 35, how be the high places were not removed people sacrificed. They burned incense still in the high places. He did build the higher gate of the house of the Lord. He compromised on the high places, which continued to foster a kind of an attitude of, I worship God in my own way. That mindset that was among God's people, he allowed it to continue. It does say that he built the higher gate of the house of the Lord uh, that word there for built, it means not to construct, but to develop buildings that already exist. So most people believe this means he beautified that section of the temple. The higher gates on the north side, which would have faced his palace, this is the part of the Temple Mount where the sacrifices were performed, and so he beautifies it. And Solomon's temple was a wonder when he made it, but it had been plundered many times and fallen into disrepair over the years. So Jotham restored some of the wonder on that side that faced his palace. But that's really the best you could say about what he did. Verse 36. Now the rest of the acts of Jotham and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? In those days, the Lord began to send Judah against Judah Rezin and the king of Syria and Pekah, the son of Remaliah. And so Jotham slept with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David, his father. And Ahaz, his son, reigned in his place. You know, it's interesting. If you read 2 Chronicles 27, this guy has a lot more to his life. It lists military conquests. It lists other big building projects among his accomplishments. In fact, from the people's perspective, Jotham was a successful king. He ended up being up to the task of following in his father's prosperity. But this author seems to be more interested in something else that occurred during his reign that shows us the rottenness continued to grow. For it says, the Lord, verse 37, began to send. It's not that they started getting invaded by these other nations. The Lord began to send them. In other words, whereas Israel's at the final stage, the northern kingdom's at the final stage of God trying to get their attention, now they're starting to get close to the final stage. He's allowing in, God's allowing invasions to occur as these opening stages of God's final discipline Isaiah tells us that Pekah threatened to invade Judah with his Syrian allies. And so despite Israel's weakened state and Judah's prosperity, you would think that that they would be able to handle that. But no, it created quite the stir in Judah. Everybody was worried about it. Everyone was talking about, what are we going to do? If Syria and Israel allies against us, what are we going to do? And that's exactly what God wanted so that they would cry out to him for help. But sadly, when... Jotham closes out his reign. He does not lead Judah in crying out to God for help. And so, the threats become more serious. Now, Kings doesn't tell us this, but something must have happened to Jotham around this time because his son Ahaz becomes co-regent with him around the age of 11 or 12. Now, Ahaz, you know, you think, man, 11 or 12-year-old has like a political platform? Yeah. These guys, were, they were trained in this from when they were very young. They had lots of opinions and lots of ideas of how the kingdom should be run. And Ahaz was very pro-Assyria. He believed that Judah allying with Assyria would, were the solution to the problem of Israel and Syria's threats. And so, as Jotham dies, Judah continues to decline spiritually, where all the politics are becoming the most important thing and not their relationship with God when Ahaz comes to the kingdom and sits on the throne, it's going to be all about that stuff. Ahaz was not a godly king. He will be the first wicked king, idolatrous king that Judah has had in a very long time. Well, what about your faith, my faith? Are we on cruise control? Turn to Ephesians 5 with me, and I want to close with this section of Scripture, verses 1 through 17 in Ephesians 5. Paul has just told the Ephesians to not grieve the Holy Spirit, so instead he says in verse 1 of chapter 5, therefore, be followers of God as dear children, and walk in love as Christ also has loved us, and has given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling Savior. Jesus has done so much for us, has He not? Paul says, follow Him. Walk in love. But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not be once named among you as become saints. Neither filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor jesting. doesn't mean honest, uh, is there nice sarcasm? You know what I'm talking about. It's not that meanness. It's not that that foulness to it, which are not proper, but rather, let's be people who are giving thanks. For this you know that no whoremonger, no unclean person, no covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance of the kingdom of Christ and of God. Don't let any man deceive you with empty words, for because of these things comes the wrath of God upon the children of disobedience, unbelievers. You're not an unbeliever, you're a believer. Therefore, do not be partakers with them, for you were sometimes darkness, but now are you light in the Lord." walk as children of light. For the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness and righteousness and truth, proving what is acceptable unto the Lord. And have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. For it is a shame even to speak of those things which are done by them in secret. But all things that are reproved are made manifest by the light, for whatsoever does make manifest is light." Wherefore, here it is, which is why he says, this is why the Scriptures tell us, Awake, you that sleep, and arise from the dead, that, and Christ shall give you light. Wake up. The Scriptures continually tell us to wake up. Don't just set it on cruise control. Wake up. See, then, that you walk circumspectly. The word there means carefully, not like fools, but as wise redeeming the time, because the days are evil. Wherefore, do not be unwise, but understanding what the will of the Lord is. If the Lord's been sending you, wake-up calls. Wake up. Don't hit the snooze button. Wake up. Let's not be unwise like so many in this chapter for both the nation of Israel and Judah were. Let's redeem the time. Let's wake up and press into Jesus. Let's all stand. Lord, what a wonderful command that you give to us to wake up. And Lord, maybe there are some here tonight who've they've been hitting the snooze button. Lord, it's so easy. In fact, I know I don't have to do anything to, to just start sliding backwards. It's just the default setting. So Lord, we, we have to walk carefully, conduct our lives carefully. We have to think about what we're doing. So Lord... We make that decision tonight to not remain on cruise control, but to take, get up, take the wheel, think about what we're doing, and then to look to You to lead us, to act on what You've called us to do, to listen to what You're saying, or let it not come to a place where we have to have something die in our life for it to get our attention, like it did for Isaiah. Lord, grab our hearts. Lord, I pray that none would leave here tonight without responding to whatever it is that you're speaking to them. In Jesus' name, amen.